Hey, everybody. Absolutely stunning news this week. I'm the one who gets to say the bumper this time. Take that, Brian. Not only is this audio episode available as a video episode on our Patreon, we also have, for the first time ever, very first time, I'm going to keep dragging this out so mine gets to be longer than Brian's. For the very first time, we now have available at merch.latenight.com peaches and lemons pin sets, enamel pins designed by me. One peach, one lemon, two halves of a heart. You can give one to a friend, keep them for yourself. Give the lemon to your annoying podcast co-host. Whatever you want to do with them, stick them in your eyes. I don't care. Wait, I don't want to promote pin violence um, in an ad. Anyway, merch.latenight.com. Go get those. Don't stick them in your eyes. Enjoy the episode. I'm trying to remember when we saw each other last, which was probably four years ago now, it was Atlanta for you? Because you moved around a lot, right? Me and my wife moved to Atlanta, I, th- I think it was 2015, and we moved from Ghana. So it was a big move. We've been here ever since, mostly in the same neighborhood that whole time. So how do you two know each other? Yeah, so I went to high school with the other half of Ninja Sex Party, Dan Abidan. Well, we grew up together, I think probably since kindergarten. I can't remember if he was in my kindergarten class, but I've known him like my entire life. Wow. We weren't in very close touch, but I sort of followed his career for a while on Facebook and stuff. And eventually I decided I wanted to do an article on them if they would allow it. And I did. I did a story on Brian and Dan. I'd never met Brian before, but we met up in uh, Indianapolis. Yep. And uh, I spent like two, three days with you guys, something like that. Yeah, that's right. Because that was at Indie PopCon, right? Yep, it was. I can't remember exactly what year. It was probably like 2017. Yeah, which I believe was the last con we ever did. Really? It seemed like you guys were having fun. Was that not the case? No, we had a great time. It was not because we didn't have a good time. We actually had a great time at that con, but that con did have a few of the problems that pretty much all non-very, very huge cons have, which is security wasn't awesome I mean, that's really the biggest deal, like a few issues with people hanging out in spaces they shouldn't have been. And it's because they're largely volunteer staffed and people are busy and don't have a lot of experience, I think, often running those things. Uh, Maybe the upper ups do. But, you know, as you go down the food chain, some people don't quite know what they're doing. And so at some point it was like, well, we could also just be putting on our own shows. This is just when we were starting to like tour tour too. So what year would that have like been? 2017-ish, I think. Oh, okay. And I think that was the maybe the first year we were really like touring, touring. And it was like, well, rather than going into this environment that we don't really know, which frankly also doesn't usually pay that great, you know, just to put it all out there, let's just do our own show and put on a concert the way we want to do it. And then we can have, you know, whatever kind of fan experience we want to have. So we basically transitioned from cons, which we hadn't done that many of anyway, to live shows. It was crazy being there from my perspective. I mean, it's sort of documented in the article for all to see. Yeah. I mean, I was there to see, you know, one of two people who was like someone I grew up with. And it was weird to see a bunch of strangers to me and to him, to you guys, just like it was very, very weird to see someone lining up for an autograph. From a childhood friend. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it was just a weird experience, but really fun. We did have a great time. Actually, I'd never been to Indianapolis before, so that was in itself a fun 
experience just to check out a new city. Uh, and actually, that's probably one of the places we'll hit on our next tour. But this is something we didn't know at the time, but know much better now. The fan communities like in the Midwest spe- specifically are incredible. So like when we talk about touring, Ohio, for whatever reason, has a huge number of fans. And I think not just, you know, for us, but in general, there's something about the Midwest that makes it really great for shows and cons and fan experiences in a way that, you know, like L.A., it's fucking pulling teeth to get anyone to come to anything. And kind of the same in New York. You know, it's just too much stuff going on. But whenever we've been on tour, the Midwest has consistently been like, holy shit, where are all these people come from? Well, some of them came from hundreds of miles away. I remember right. <laughs> um, just talking to a few people and I'm like, do you live here in Indianapolis? And they're like, no, we live in some other state in some other city. Yeah. Is that the one where someone came from like Sweden just for that or something? Whoa. I don't remember that. That might've been somewhere else, but you know, occasionally you get these far international travelers coming for stuff. That's awesome. But enough about Ninja Sex Party. The more important thing for us right now is that, I mean, this was not like your first writing gig showing up at this Ninja Sex Party show. Like you're a career, you know, writer. I can't. So did Danny contacted you or you reached out to Dan? I mean, you, you had this very established career. Actually, I need to disagree with that. So at the time, <laughs> I was just like uh, beginning a new career. I was probably a year and a half into deciding I'm going to be a full-time journalist. Oh, real? That's it? Oh, my God. I didn't realize that. Wow. Oh, wow. Yes. I was on a really limited budget there. It was difficult to get someone to pay me to go to Indianapolis and write this story. You guys weren't as well-known as you, as you are now. And, you know, there was no Washington Post story at that point. Right. And, you know, I had to convince someone to pay me enough money to go all the way there, stay over there. My budget was so limited that I, I stayed in someone's couch. I did literal couch surfing through the website. And it was probably only like my... I don't know, fourth or fifth feature story. Oh, really? Oh my God. I thought you were much further in than that. Wow. No, it was pretty early. I hadn't done really like any pieces in any mainstream publications unless you count Deadspin, I think. That's a big one. Yeah. I think that was the only bigger publication I'd done at the time. I'm a lot more established now, but back then, no, I was pretty new. And had you been specializing in, you know, pop culture stuff or was this just like, this was just a thing because you know, you knew Dan and you thought this would be a cool story. Yeah. It was just like, I knew Dan, I knew it would be a good story. I just, I knew like more about him than the average person just because I knew him from as a kid. And I just thought this is a really interesting take on something really interesting being done by you guys. But I knew I could make a really good story out of it. And I think I did in the end, hopefully. I thought it was great. Yeah. And it was in Mel, right? That was the publication, Mel Magazine. Yeah, that was the only story I've I've written for them. I think they still exist, I'm pretty sure. They do, because we were actually looking them up recently for totally different reasons, having nothing to do, I think, with you. Uh, They just came up and we were looking at their stuff. We were looking at their, you know, clickbaity headlines (laughs) that they put out there right now. Very well-constructed clickbait headlines. Truly, they work. They're funded by Dollar Shave Club. Really? Or they were, certainly back then. I knew that for sure back then. I didn't realize that. It's possible they changed owners. There was, especially back then, there was this phenomenon of new sort of successful tech companies like Dollar Shave Club having just like these side projects of having like these cool magazines. And that's one of the ones that's been most successful. Yeah, very, very interesting. And it's it's a great place for freelancers to write for. Yeah. What are other examples of that? I didn't realize this. Airbnb. They had one, I think, until COVID. Airbnb had its own like press outlet. 
but theirs is much more focused. It just says like Airbnb on it. And it's just like about like travel writing and travel writing. I haven't written for them, but I know they exist. I think that one existed right up until COVID. I think COVID just cut that because they didn't have any business. Um, And uh, I'm pretty sure Casper had one too, the mattress company. (laughs) I'm not 100% sure about that, but I'm pretty sure they did. There was like articles about these publications because it was so weird. It's probably died down since then because all of journalism has sort of become less stable. But yeah, it was a weird phenomenon. I didn't know this at at all. I mean, probably we discussed at the time the Dollar Shave Club thing, but I guess the idea is just kind of throw some darts and see if anything sticks in terms of when you're starting a company. But running a publication, I mean, that's not like easy to run a publication, right? Certainly, I couldn't do it. Yeah, and to do it well (laughs) and have good editing and even just the tech infrastructure of getting that site to be what you want it to be cannot be like super easy. That's really interesting. Yeah. I think they just take like some extra money and just like hand it off to established journalists and say, you guys do it. That's my impression. I don't actually know the inner workings of Mel because I just wrote one story, but it was like, you know, really nice experience for sure. The whole point was to just have a really good time writing about you guys. And it totally worked out that way. And not every story is so fun. The article is, is great. And I remember at the time, too, we were like, holy shit, like a real article about NSP by, a, you know, a real writer in a real magazine. I think we talked about this at the time, but there was this thing for a while where digital acts were not getting coverage in traditional media. And so whenever there was like a Wikipedia article, it would not meet the standards for notability or whatever, because you couldn't point to the press coverage. Oh, right. And for a while, I think there was one person even who was like going through all these YouTubers and trying to strike down their Wikipedia pages for lack of notability. You know, it would be people with millions and millions of views or whatever, but they didn't have the articles to point to because Wikipedia has pretty strict standards of what constitutes notability. And so I don't think they succeeded for us, but it was definitely like this page has been flagged. We got that for a bit because we couldn't point to any print. And I remember when you wrote the article, it was like, oh, fucking yes. Like a thing we can (laughs) point to where someone actually acknowledges that we exist in a way that Wikipedia thinks is meaningful. That was a pretty big deal for us. So is it safe to say that you wouldn't exist without me? Yes, of course. Cool. 15%. (laughs) (laughs) I did a quick Google of the article and like one of the first things that comes up is the footnote in the Wikipedia page for the article. Oh, nice. That's awesome. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rad. People at home, the article is called Ninja Sex Party Wants to Make You Smile. (laughs) I get like strangely excited whenever I see one of my stories in a Wikipedia page because it will probably drive a lot of readers to my stories. If whatever it is that I'm writing about and they, you know, see a link to it in Wikipedia. Yeah. That's really exciting. So was your move back to the States concurrent with this decision to start writing or were those kind of unrelated. Yeah. I can't remember which came first, but by the time uh, we left Ghana, we were living in Accra, Ghana. We decided together that I was going to just go full-time freelance. I'd published about two stories, like two like real feature stories, not in like major publications, but like I thought they were good enough and they got like enough readers that I could just try and see what happens. You know, mm-hmm. I had a few friends who freelance for a living and I thought, Hey, why don't I just try it? We're going to live somewhere like relatively cheap Miranda, my wife, would also freelance. And between the two of us, you know, we could probably like make a living off it. You know, it was just two of us didn't have very high standards of living. Yeah. But it it was definitely an upward trajectory. I think the first year I probably made under $10,000 in writing, something like that. The first year you moved back. The first year, yeah. In fact, I'm sure I did. But, uh, you know, slowly and slowly, I've got more and more ideas. Got a few editors in Atlanta to trust me and give me some like story 
assignments. I met a bunch of journalists here in town who just gave me a lot of really good advice and become good friends and just sort of taught me like how to be better at journalism and pitching and stuff like that. And yeah, and I'm not sure how good I am now, but I'm a lot better than I was back then. <laughs> what like constitutes journalism advice? I, like I know almost nothing about journalism, so I'm curious what like the tricks of the trade are. Sure. Well, that's a wide ranging question. <laughs> I can't even answer that question in general. Um, I'm a specific kind of journalist. I'm a long form journalist. I only write for the most part, feature stories that are like narratively driven. And some of them are investigative journalism and some of them are more like closer, like pop culture journalism or just like a good yarn. And, you know, I have just a lot of friends doing that. And I would write a pitch, you know, you write a pitch to an editor and say, what do you think of this idea? And if they want it, then you have to execute it. And I had a lot of friends who could read my pitch and say, this might sell or you should go to this publication or this editor who might like it. And you can just go straight to people instead of like sending it to like a generic email here and there. And yeah, I just learned a lot about the whole process. And now I'm like pretty confident with pitching and executing, you know, a lot more than I was back then. Like when I pitched the Ninja Sex Party article, I had no idea if I could actually do it. I didn't really have like a whole plan in mind. I would go there, follow them, and then hopefully some cool stuff happens, you know, but I didn't really have a good plan. Not sure I would today either, but I know I can write a story now. Right, right. I forgot until right now, you were the person who turned me on to Slate Star Codex. Oh, yeah. Cool. I was and am like a, still a fan of it. It's gone through the roof in popularity and oh my God. sort of notoriety now. Um, but I still read it like pretty regularly. Yeah. So, Leighton, do you know what Slate Star Codex is or, or was, I guess I should say? Nope. Okay. Now, correct me, Sean, if this is wrong. So there's this guy, Scott Alexander, who is a psychologist, psychiatrist? Psychiatrist, I believe. Psychiatrist. He's part of the rationalist community, and he writes these very, very long blog posts just about interesting topics. And a lot of it is like, let's take a kind of complicated issue and really get into it and see what we can say confidently about it. And often these are very nuanced discussions about public policy, or he writes a lot about psychiatry because that's what he knows about. And it is now, I think, maybe the premier outlet for this, for what I would call the rationalist, some people might call skeptic, but I don't think that's right in this case, community of just people trying to understand stuff better. There's a famous blog called Less Wrong, which is part of this as well. Is that Yudowski? Who writes that one? Do you remember? That's a community of people who write that one. I, I don't know if he founded that one or if he was just part of that. I'm not really sure. Scott used to like comment on there, and he still comments on there a lot. And I don't think he's one of the founders either. I don't even know who founded that one. Got it. But the idea is basically like, look, shit is complicated. Let's just try to, from a honest and data-driven approach, try to figure stuff out. And they're generally, I would say, people lean slightly liberal, but not in a way that looks like a lot of progressive people today. I don't even want to fucking say this, but I'm going to say it slightly more libertarian than anything else, but without a lot of the bullshit that I think traditionally comes with that with more famous people. I find it generally very interesting, at times infuriating, and <laughs> there's always going to be something interesting that someone says. And the other thing that's really great is, as Sean, you alluded to, there's a really healthy and non-terrible comment section where people make meaningful contributions to the articles. Like they will say, okay, I read this. 
I think this is wrong because of this. And there's not a lot of name calling and bullshit typically, although as with all such things, sometimes it gets out of control. Is that a fair summary? Do you think? I think so. Yeah. I sometimes get a little worried about like defining that community. And I'm not sure I could accurately do it. I'm not part of it. Yeah. But I'm a sort of a, a lurker in that community. Same. Definitely a big fan of Scott Alexander specifically. I love his writing. Yeah, he's a really good writer. It's kind of hard to deny that. But you know, there are a lot of people who dislike him and that whole community as well. Uh, absolutely. Now it's a substack. I enjoy reading the substack now. So he had this thing that I'm sure you followed at least to some extent, Sean, where so he was at least a working clinician. Like he was seeing patients. And so he wanted to have a pseudonym so that his patients couldn't like find him and compromise their treatment and all the complications that would come along with that. And then in some New York Times article, which I can't remember if it even came out. It did. I'm looking at the posts that he made about this whole situation. So the article, they threatened to take away his pseudonym to out his name. And he didn't want to do that. So he took down the blog. Shut down the whole thing. Took it down completely. And then eventually they did write the article I can't remember if they used his real name in the article after all, or maybe he just released his name at that point, but his whole life changed because of it. He left his practice and started a Substack. He may have lost the pseudonym, but he still uses it in the blog, but it's pretty easy to find his real name. It was a really controversial thing. Yeah. Yeah. He says he was told the article was going to be positive and then it came out really negative, which that has happened to me. That sucks, especially New York Times. My God. Yeah. Well, this seems like a good place to maybe introduce ourselves and our guest. Everybody, this is Leighton Night with Brian Wecht. Over here, we have Leighton Gray. What's up? That voice was just Brian. Hi. Mystery guest, whose name we've said several times. Would you care to introduce yourself? <laughs> My name is Sean Raviv, and I'm a freelance journalist, and I live in Atlanta. Cool. So in addition to the stuff that we've already been talking about with Sean, the most recent thing that caused me to... Well, actually, you emailed us about the 6969 video when it came out a few weeks ago. And I was like, oh shit, I've actually been meaning to write you because I was listening to one of my favorite podcasts that I talk about all the time in the show, Las Culturesis on iHeartRadio. And an ad for Long Shot by Sean Revive came up. And I was like, what? Sean Revive, Sean Revive? Wow. And <laughs> I learned that you'd been doing this podcast basically about the history of vaccines and the COVID vaccine kind of in particular. And I was like, oh my God. So I started listening to it. I thought it was a really fun and interesting podcast and seemed like a good excuse to chat. Thanks. It was my first podcast. It sort of came out of nowhere for me. COVID struck me like everyone else. And we like essentially had to take a year off of our lives. And then I didn't do much writing or much journalism at all during COVID. I think I maybe published two stories all of 2020. And then I decided to go back to work March this year. And right around that time, like within like a few days, this smaller company called School of Humans, they make podcasts and TV shows. They reached out and asked if I wanted to do a podcast you know, about history of vaccines. And yeah, and I've been meaning to do a podcast for a while. I had a few ideas that never really made it. And I got really excited about learning about vaccines. I love science stories. And I didn't know anything about it at all. So it was a really cool opportunity. And I spent like, yeah, about six months doing it and just finished a few weeks ago. Oh, congrats. Yeah, and I think it really paid off. The story is just cool. Like, it is an amazing story of human ingenuity. For sure. It's crazy. Vaccines have, like, the craziest history, and I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know where it started. I didn't know the science of it. And, you know, and I'm just a lay person, obviously, but I learned a lot, you know, over six months' time, and I got to interview some of the coolest people in science. Yeah. I was psyched when you talked to Paul Offit, who's been mm -hmm. a speaker for many years at this 
pop science conference I help run called Nexus. So I, I've met Paul a few times. I mean, how many people can say they, you know, created a vaccine? Well, more now than previously, but, you know, it's still a fucking cool thing. And I didn't know any of his backstory about the botched surgery on his foot. And, you know, I didn't know much about him as a person. I just knew he was a great science communicator and had done important work for medicine. This year, he actually spoke at our conference this year and gave an amazing and one of the most concise, like, here's what's up with the COVID vaccine talks, like the kind where I was just like, this has to be sent to everybody who's on the fence about the vaccine. And he starts out by saying, look, they announced they're working on this. I'm not pro COVID vaccine. Okay. Like I'm pro however this thing works out, we're going to look at the data and then figure it out. And then just walks through and goes through every negative claim, including the really crazy like 5G magnetization stuff. And is just, you know, says like, let's take this seriously, you know, and respond to it. And I just thought he did such a great job of like, bam, 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 going through the bullet points. Yeah, he's a really unique guy because he's not just the inventor of a vaccine, he's also a vaccine historian. He knows like, a ton knows about the history of vaccines because he wrote this book about Maurice Hillman who invented like every vaccine that we get in our bodies when, we, when we're born. And he also just like knows a ton about like vaccine advocacy. He's just like a unique combination of skills and he's really good at talking. Yes. Which is, you know, not normal for a scientist. You and Paul <laughs> Offit are strange outliers. Yeah. And yeah, so getting to talk to people like him was awesome. Yeah. I just want to pull out a few things I learned or just sound bites that stuck with me from your show. One of which was the guy who ran the simulations and said, what was it? Seven out of 10 times COVID-19 wouldn't have gotten out of the first human, you know, and it would have been very likely that one guy gets infected with it, it dies in him, and then that's it. And it doesn't become a pandemic. Yeah, when he, when he said that, I was pretty blown away. He, he was basically saying that if he ran a simulation about like what could have happened in the beginning of COVID and like just based on what like normally happens in this kind of outbreaks, this probably shouldn't have happened. We just got super unlucky. There should have been like no spread because normally this thing just dies off right away. Yeah. Just hearing that like sort of what could have been, how our lives could have just been not affected at all by this. Yeah, it, it kind of blew my mind. It was one of the earlier interviews we did. Yeah. And it was just turned out to be a really important one. Well, and it really drives home this fact that like people love yelling at, for example, Nate Silver, because they're like, you know, you fucked up the 2016 election. They love yelling at him for a lot of other reasons, too, of course. But the one that drives me nuts is when they're like, you miscalled the 2016 election. And he's like, guys, we said Trump had a 30 percent chance of winning. Like, that's not that unlikely. You know, unlikely stuff happens, especially when a lot of things happen, right? When a lot of things happen, <laughs> unlikely things are going to happen at some point. And, you know, you can't yell at the statisticians when an unlikely event occurs because that's going to happen some percentage of the time. I think we're not good normally, including myself, at thinking probabilistically, if that's the right word. No. That's just not what humans are generally good at. I think people, especially with like the election modeling, they say, Oh, like a 60% chance? Yeah, they'll win. And you're like, no, literally that means six out of 10 times they win and the other four, the other person win. You know, that's just not how it works. And even a one out of 10 event, if you have a bunch of congressional races or whatever, and you have, you know, hundreds of these across the country in any given time, some of the one out of 10s are going to happen. The probabilistic thinking, this is something I used to think a lot about when communicating science, because there was this thing. So in the LHC, 
Layden, do you know what the LHC is? Nope. The LHC is the Large Hadron Collider. It's a giant particle accelerator oh, in, yeah. in CERN. You went for the acronym. I wouldn't know by the acronym. The only reason I knew about it is because I once wrote a play about it. Otherwise, I would not have known what you were talking about yet. Go on. Okay. I don't care what I was just going to say. I want to hear about the play <laughs> about the LHC. It's an unfinished play. There's a first draft. Before I was a journalist, I was a playwright. You know, I never made it as a playwright, obviously. But I had one commission. I got a commission from this really cool theater in New York to write a murder mystery that takes place at the LHC, at that large hadron. I always pronounce it hadron collider. People say both. I say hadron, but hadron is not incorrect. I don't know what's correct. Yeah. So I wrote a first draft and it was pretty good. It was all right. I mean, I'm not very good with science. I read a few books and then I wrote the play, but I never wrote the next draft because I got writer's block and then I became a journalist as a result <laughs> of that writer's block. That's like direct like, route to being a journalist because I couldn't finish that damn play. Really? <laughs> Wow. Yeah. So what was the idea of the play? If you, I mean, I assume you're in no danger of finishing this and this is a spoiler or anything like that. No, no, I'm never going to finish it and no one should. <laughs> okay. It's been a while. It's been about 10 years since I looked at it, but a physicist dies at the lab and there's some other physicist who's blind and like runs like the, the collider. I don't remember. I probably gave him some fake position and this detective is brought on to find out what happens and has to deal with the science behind what the collider is learning. And, you know, I, I read like a Brian Green book, is that his name? Brian Green yep. book, and probably took all my science from that book and a couple other, you know, lay books like that. But I don't remember the exact story. There's some similarity to Angels and Demons, right? Isn't <laughs> Thank you for bringing that up so I didn't have to. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely not as good as that book. And, you know, I know that's trash, but I'm sure there was a very, like, eloquent story told there, and I don't think my play had such eloquence. Uh, I reread it, like, a few weeks ago. It it's, is not well-written. Trash is the word. It's highly enjoyable trash, yes. but is it good trash? No. I'm fine with trash. Yeah, yeah. Trash can be great. A friend gave me that book because he was like, dude, you're going to do your fucking physics, and, like, you're going to love this. <laughs> and... I read it and I was like, oh, oh, <laughs> this was a long time ago now. But I remember the science being rough and the writing being rougher. Is the collider in that book? I think it is. Yeah. There's a murder at CERN and then there's like an antimatter bomb and just the worst. Pro like Dan Brown, I think, has maybe the worst prose out of any popular so bad. Uh, fiction writer. <sighs> Isn't there something about now this is going to come as a shock with Dan Brown, the Catholic Church? Yeah, the Vatican. Right, like suppresses. electing the new pope. Because they're worried about like finding God in the science or something like that, right? <sighs> That's not the Da Vinci Code? That's a different one? Uh, yeah, shockingly. They're very similar. <laughs> yeah, Angels and Demons was the precursor to the Da Vinci Code. It was the first Robert Langdon mystery of many. I think I just have them all in my head as one story, I think. Okay. Well, because they're all the same. All of the characters have like, oh, this guy got caught in a well as a child and there's going to be a climactic moment where he's going to like use how he got caught in a well as a child. Like this is multiple series. This isn't even just Robert Langdon. Like other characters do this. Every single <laughs> fucking book ends with some hokey pun-based sex scene that's just like straight people, are you okay? I don't even remember this. Like everyone is just... Dan Brown's self-insert. I reread these books obsessively when I was a child. Like, The Da Vinci Code was my favorite book as a kid. They suck. They're really bad. <laughs> but you just read it again. Weeks ago? Yeah. Yeah. I, I reread Deception Point, Da Vinci Code, and Angels and Demons. All bad. Layton reads more than anyone I know. I mean, it is not uncommon for you to read, like, four or five books a week, right? Yeah. I've read 75 books this year. 
Oh my God, I want your life so badly. <laughs> That's so awesome. That's my dream is to just read and do nothing else. I have to constantly put content into my brain or I will simply go insane. So, <laughs> What I was originally going to say about the LHC though and the probabilistic thinking was before the LHC turned on, there was a very real question, will it destroy the universe? Like this was a question that people asked and is not, a crazy question. Let me put it this way. It is a worthwhile question, okay, that you can consider and should be considered, will this thing destroy the universe? The answer is no, but there were some safety studies done because what you're doing, you're, you're, you know, colliding particles together at very high speeds. If they get close enough, you could create a mini black hole right? Because all a black hole is, is enough mass energy compressed into a small enough space. And then the question is, does that black hole, you know, eat everything? So like you have to figure that out. And there's all sorts of like checks you have to do. I remember a theoretical physicist I knew was part of the safety study. And one of the things they looked at all these different ways, it might create a black hole, including if there were extra spatial dimensions, because that affects the properties of the black hole. So like he said, okay, well, we think we live in three spatial dimensions, but string theory posits that maybe there are more. What if there's four, five, six, and seven? If there's, let's say, five extra dimensions we didn't know about, does that make the LHC unsafe? And in every case, what you can say is not, it won't happen, but you can say it is overwhelmingly, exponentially, like in the truest sense of the word, exponentially unlikely that anything is going to go wrong, right? So it was like two to one. <laughs> That's right. Two to one. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably not. We're probably fine. <laughs> Nate Silver. Yeah. But it's like, there's a one in, I'm going to make up a number. It's like a 10 to the 10 to the 500 or whatever, you know, some very small chance. It's it, And it, I think it actually wasn't even that big. It was like one in 10 to the 43 chance that something might go wrong or something like that. And what people hear when they hear there's a one in 10 to the whatever, 50 chance, they hear, well, that's not zero. They hear Jim Carrey. They're like, so yeah. you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> yeah, so you're saying there's a chance, 100%. And it's like, no, do you understand how many fucking zeros that is? Like, <laughs> it's never going to happen. If you did this once every millisecond for the lifetime of the universe, it would still be impossible, essentially. Don't worry about it. And there were lawsuits. Like, someone filed a lawsuit, I think, in the state of Hawaii, and actually, the lawsuit was not really legitimate. I think it was kind of a PR stunt. But the scientists were being a little bit glib because they were treating the black, I remember this, the black holes as if they were stationary and not moving, which of course they'd be moving because the particles are moving. And that would change the lifetime because of relativity. So like, remember that in this lawsuit, they were like, yeah, but the scientists said they weren't moving and blah, blah, blah. And of course, the like in the actual papers, they had considered all this, but in the few people that were swatting them away, they said some things that were a little bit more glib than they needed to be. And these guys filing the lawsuit, which eventually got thrown out, did get uh, called out. My favorite thing about this, just to go off on one more thing, there's this wild Danish scientist named Holger Nielsen. He's one of these guys who's done great work, but is also kind of a nut. He's very well known in Denmark. And he writes crazy papers all the time, some of which end up being amazing, most of which are you know, just really far out there. The question, sorry, was, will the LHC create particles that travel backwards in time or something like that? And he said, okay, 
here's what we need to do to see if the LHC is going to destroy the universe. I'm going to get this slightly wrong, but the idea will be there. Let's create a deck with, let's say, a billion cards in it. And on every card, you write an action. And the action is something you have commit before you draw the card to doing. So if the card says, go get a sandwich, you're going to get a sandwich. If the card says, put $100 in your bank account, you're going to put $100 in your bank account. If the card says, never turn on the LHC, you will never turn on the LHC. So take this deck, write everything on it, shuffle the cards, draw one at random. And one of them says, don't turn on the LHC. If you get, don't turn on the LHC, that is evidence that something about it has traveled backwards in time to save the universe. There's some kind of like cosmic self-correction going on where the LHC is preventing the universe from destroying itself. So if you <laughs> think the LHC might destroy the universe, by the way, I'm sure I'm getting big details about this wrong. Do this experiment. The more cards you have, the better an experiment it is, by the way, right? Because it becomes less and less likely that you're going to draw the LHC card and do the experiment. But you have to commit, and you really have to mean it, that if you get the don't turn on the LHC card, you're not going to turn on the LHC literally ever. Okay, people read this, and they were like, are you fucking kidding me? No, like, (laughs) no. I don't know anyone that thought this was a legitimate scientific idea, but it did make some of the papers because this guy comes up with wild ideas all the time, and that's one. It sounds like it's easy to understand thought experiment, except for... Whatever he's concluding, that part I don't really get. Well, yeah. And also, like, how does that work exactly with the time travel? That's yeah, not yeah. really something that's widely yeah. accepted in, like, theoretical physics. You know what we need? We need Dan Brown to explain this to us. Yeah. He would get it. In short chapters. Yeah. <laughs> Paragraph-long chapters. Yep. <laughs> Fifth grade reading level. Let's go. Oh, there's a sexy lady scientist. Yeah. Robert Langdon is... 100% Dan Brown's self-insert. He would figure it out. Yeah. Sean, I wanted to ask, in going through all this vaccine history, I'm curious, like, and I'm assuming that this is from the very beginning, but, like, how far back does uh, people being super anti or suspicious of vaccines, like, go? Because I'm assuming there is a lineage of this. So pretty much as far back as there is written history of it, there is written documentation of people being skeptical of it. A lot of it for good reason, and later on, a lot of it for bad reason. In the beginning, uh, when the people were just inoculating against smallpox, 18th century mostly, there's lots of people you know, dying from smallpox because it just spreads so easily, there's no way to stop it. But they figure out a way to stop it. They basically just give someone a little bit of smallpox, they get a little bit sick, and then they're protected for the rest of their lives. But there are some churches in England, at least, are very, very against this. And the scientific community in the U.S. is very against this as well. There's like lots and lots of pushback from all sorts of communities. So yeah, tons and tons of that. Paul Offit's the expert on that, uh, the guy we mentioned before. But there's like, yeah, there's documentation of that since the very, very beginning for all different reasons. Sometimes politics, sometimes money, sometimes fear, sometimes God. There's like just all sorts of reasons why people have been skeptical over time. And I think COVID's got its own extremely unique reasons, or at least some of them. But there was like a trajectory over time of like vaccine skeptics sort of just going along for the ride with vaccine creators. Was it a conscious choice not to include like the Wakefield MMR stuff in your podcast? Because that's such a huge part of the- What's the Wakefield incident? He was the British researcher. He's the first vaccines cause autism 
guy. Oh. Oh, yeah. And he published this widely discredited article in The Lancet and has become kind of the poster boy for this non-existent link between vaccines and autism um, and, and continues to spout this claim. You might not notice it, but if you listen to the whole series, you won't find any politics or any really real examples of like skepticism in the whole podcast. I just decided to avoid the whole subject um, and yeah. just talk about the science and not really spend a lot of time defending it. Yeah. Even with Paul Offit, who was like a huge you know vaccine advocate, I didn't really include that part of, of our talk. Yeah, that's fair. It was mostly just history and science um, and just trying to avoid anything controversial at all. Um, yeah. I just thought it'd be easier for the listener that way. You could keep your blood at like a more like middling level that way, you know? Yeah. And to be fair, I didn't even think about it until right now. Like it did not seem like an obvious omission or anything like that. You were telling, you know, the story was pretty clear throughout. I was just more curious when we were talking with Layton's anti-vaccine question. I was going to say, if anything, I was including a few incidents that I didn't like point them out this way, but there's a lot of like questionable tactics that, you know, vaccine creators have used over time, simply because that was the only science available at the time. Yeah. Um, there were different moral standards for like who you tested on. And I included a little bit of that, but like, if anything, I was sort of leaning towards like, here's some stuff that went wrong over time. Um, yes. But, you know, it led us to all these things that go right now. I just wanted to sort of just keep it like right in the middle so anyone can listen to it and enjoy it. I was reading something interesting fairly recently about the Lyme disease vaccine, which I guess was developed in the 90s and did very well in trials and then was canned because of anti-vaccine fear. But I think they're looking into making it again. Really scary disease. A terrifying disease. And now it's like everywhere. But when you grow up in the Northeast, like I remember going to summer camp and you're fucking hiking around the woods, you know, in 90 degree weather in long pants because you're just told, like, tuck everything in. There's fucking ticks out there. Like, you know, be careful. Yeah, it could really ruin your life. <laughs> no terror like finding a tick on you. Like, it's oh. always a horrible discovery, especially if you're a kid. <laughs> Did you ever find a tick? Oh, yeah. I never found a tick on me. Never. Not once. What? Really? On pets, yes, but not on me. And, and there's the different, like the deer ticks, like the real little teeny ones. But then you get like the real fat fuckers too. They probably are less scary medically, but they certainly look more terrifying because you suddenly have this, you know, fucking olive attached to your skin. Yeah. Sucking blood out of you. I had a big boy. I remember my dad removed a tick. I think it was from behind my ear. I was probably around like eight or nine or something like that. But I remember him just like digging into my skin and taking it out and then showing it to me and it was still alive. Ugh. I think it was a pretty small one and it was traumatic as a kid. Yeah. And then I got tick bite fever, which I don't think Ooh. you can get it in the US, but I was in, in Swaziland or Eswatini and I was living there 10 years ago and there's a lot of ticks there and you get something called tick bite fever from them, mm -hmm. uh, which basically just gives you like a horrible, horrible shiver Ugh. for I, I think anywhere from 24 hours to like several days. I had it just overnight. I had it pretty mild. I just like woke up in the middle of the night and I was shivering like I was in the Arctic um, and that Ugh. lasted a few hours. And I think by the next day, I just had like a mild fever. But some of my friends had it for days or if not weeks. Oh my God. And it's horrible. But I remember finding the tick, you know, like I think it was somewhere like in the bottom of my stomach and it, it had blown up by that. It had been there for several days probably. Wow. And it was really scary, yeah, <laughs> really heck. scary and horrible, but it's not as, nearly as bad as Lyme disease. You get the fever and then you're done. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting with Lyme disease too, because then you do get the chronic Lyme disease, which I guess is maybe somewhat disputed still, as far as I understand it. It's not 
clear that chronic Lyme disease is a thing. Someone's going to be mad at me for saying this. Ross Douthat's going to be mad for sure. The New York Times columnist yeah. <laughs> uh, has been writing about his experience. It's like really been harmful to him. I think he's got a book coming out about it. And a friend of mine's uh, mom died, I think, from her complications from Lyme disease. I'm not 100% sure, but like she was really, really sick. Yeah. It's a fucking serious thing. Yeah. But am I correct? And again, I'm kind of speaking out of my ass here. As I recall, whether there's like an analog of long COVID, like a chronic Lyme disease thing, I think maybe is not widely accepted in the medical community. But that could be wrong. I would say it's probably more accurate to say it's debated. It's debated. Okay. That's my understanding. But I, I only know just from reading a few columns about it. Yeah, I don't have a good understanding of it either. One other thing from the podcast that really stuck out to me, I can't remember the guy's name. But the guy who basically said, without Washington inoculating the troops against smallpox, we wouldn't have America. Yeah, I didn't go too deep into <laughs> that, but this guy was awesome. His name is Arthur Boylston. He's like a sort of amateur historian, American living in, in the UK. He just like dug really, really deep into the history of inoculation and really like helped bring it back to like historical prominence. And I got a copy of his book, which I think he self-published. And it was a really good book, had lots of really interesting factoids. And I think he appeared in two episodes, including the second one. And just a really, really cool guy. Yeah. But I was like, what an interesting claim that for all these people screaming about liberty and, you know, this is America and I'm not going to get vaccinated. Like, <laughs> here's a guy saying, look, dude, you wouldn't have a country without a much less well-regulated and tested vaccine than anything we currently have. I thought that was an interesting claim. Yeah, he's literally saying that George Washington like may not have succeeded <laughs> and become right. president if, if not for these vaccines. I'm not sure if this is like a certain fact, but he seemed pretty confident about it. You know, you know his decision to vaccinate the troops at various times. I didn't even know that, but that is well established that Washington vaccinated the troops. Like, I believe so. Don't quote me on that, but I'm pretty sure, yeah. I mean, it seemed like the sources were pretty good for that, that Boylston used, yeah. See, that was news to me. I didn't have any real sense of you know, to what extent people were inoculated against smallpox, you know, back then. I knew it was a thing, but if you would ask me, were most people inoculated? I would have been like, I don't know. Yeah, I, know. I still don't know. Things moved a lot slower back then. It took like probably many, many decades to get any sort of like big numbers of inoculated or vaccinated people back, back then, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What was like the most surprising piece of information for you as you were putting this together? I mean, I was shocked by a lot of things, but I was really shocked that I'd never heard of Maurice Hillman. Yeah, me neither. He was this scientist who just like the king of vaccines. He made over 40 in his lifetime. A lot of them, I think, were like animal vaccines or unused vaccines. But if we get, let's say, about a dozen vaccines in the next you know, few years after we're born, he invented something like, I don't know, 10 out of 12, 10 out of 14 of them. And like we all get them and like so many people are alive because of these vaccines uh, who yeah. wouldn't otherwise have been. Uh -oh. And just like one guy, and I never heard his name before. And that was really weird to me. Most people still don't know his name. And that's shocking. You know, I'm a pretty well-read person. I like science. Never heard his name before, ever before. I mean, this guy has probably actually saved a billion lives or something. Maybe not, but millions. What was his lifespan? I think he died in 2006. Oh, okay. That could be a year or two off. He was born in 1918, the year of the Spanish flu, I'm pretty sure. He was born like into the worst pandemic of the century. Grew up on a farm. Right. He was the guy that his brother or something was really into animals, and he didn't think of himself as super smart or anything, but just kind of ended up going into it. 
Well, he lived on a farm, so the whole family had animals. There was another guy interviewed who had a brother who was really into animals. That was one of the Moderna founders. That's the guy I'm thinking of, yeah. Whoa. Hillman was like, he grew up on a farm raising chickens, and then he ended up like really helping to advance the use of chickens in vaccines, like because a lot of vaccines are grown in chicken eggs nowadays. Yeah. Or like, you know, just like pass through chicken parts when you're trying to like uh, weaken a virus, so you can use it as a vaccine. Yeah. Wow. I'd never heard of this guy's name either. I've heard a lot of talks on vaccines, especially the skeptic community, but number, as I said, through Paul Offit. And I was like, how the fuck have I not heard of Hellman? This guy, you know, is clearly super important for the history. Yeah, he should be in history books. Maybe he will be in the future. Maybe he already is. Uh, I'm just not sure. Certainly in science books, he should be there. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I love this series. I, you know, it was one of those things where I just learned so, so much. Talking to your friend in Sweden also, what a fun coincidence. The story here, let me see if I can get this right, is so you, Miranda? No, that's your wife's name. It's Miranda's friend whose name is Marina. Marina. Okay, right. She lives in Sweden and she had a COVID pet and she had a very, very tough experience with that COVID pet. And there's a whole episode about that with the main idea of the episode being, you know, to show how COVID was just affecting all our lives and why it's so important to stop it. And she just gave this really great example of how it could just mess your life up in so many different ways, how our lives just changed. Totally. And if I recall the bullet points, she gets a COVID pet, which has some severe issues, but because of getting the COVID pet, gets COVID and cannot take care of the pet because she can't leave the house to go take care of the dog. Like, so she gets this dog, which are hard to get anyway, because everyone wants a dog. And then the irony of being like, oh, well, it's COVID. I'm going to go get a COVID dog. Okay, well, I got COVID and a dog. And now I can't <laughs> take care of the dog because I have COVID. And I live in Sweden where, you know, other shit is happening anyway. And the dog has a major worm problem and blah, 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 blah. Pooping issues, vomiting issues, uh, daddy issues, probably. Um, yeah. The dog had, <laughs> had it all. It was a perfectly like encapsulated story just to show like, how messed up all our lives were, you know, for a lot of 2020. And I still get nightmares just thinking about my own situation, which wasn't even like a third as bad as that, you know? No, totally. We're definitely in that case when everyone asks like, how you doing? How was your last year? Like people I haven't seen in a while. And I'm like, look, I cannot complain compared to so many other people I know. Like no one had a good year, but if I start complaining, I'm the biggest asshole in the world. <laughs> Yeah. And I do all the time anyway. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was listening to the other day when I was driving around with Audrey, who's now seven. I was listening to your show. Yeah, I had a couple episodes left and I was like, OK, honey, listen, I want to I want to finish listening to this show. Are you OK? Yeah. So she's used to listening to podcasts with me in the car and we kind of alternate podcast, kids song, podcast, kids <laughs> song. And so I listened to one of the episodes and I can't even remember which one. And I was like, okay, well, listen, we can listen to music now. We listen to the episode. And she was like, no, I want to keep listening to this. I love this. Nice. That's great. Wow. Yeah. And I would stop it every few minutes to be like, do you understand what's going on? Who is this person? What's the problem they're trying to solve? You know, so checking if she was getting the information, you know, some of the jargon didn't quite land for her because she's seven, but uh, she totally understood what was happening? I remember we listened to the long COVID episode together and really got it. She liked the, what was her name? Athena? Athena Krama, yeah. Yeah, who's a, a neuroscientist, right? Yeah. 
in the UK, yeah. Who got long COVID. And Audrey was very compelled by her story. Also, anytime a girl is talking, she's just like, ah, aha, a girl. And especially if it's, you know, someone who's an expert at something, she's very into it. So when there was a real girl scientist talking about science, she was very excited about that. And I was surprised because I was expecting as much as I liked her show, not expecting it to land with the seven-year-old, but she was really, really into it. <laughs> I wrote it specifically for eight-year-olds. So she is just, she's just <laughs> through the roof advanced. That's great. Untapped demographic <laughs> podcast for seven-year-olds. Yeah. You have such an interesting story pre-journalism with moving around through Africa and stuff like that. I don't even know what specifically to ask about it, except that you've lived more places than most people I know. Yeah, I can tell you a little bit about it. You nailed the question. Tell me a little bit about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not that many places, but I lived in, I think, one extremely interesting place and one pretty damn interesting place before Atlanta. I lived in a bunch of like American cities throughout the aughts, is that what you call them? The 2000s? Yeah. And then in 2010, I got a Fulbright Fellowship to go to Swaziland. It was then known as Swaziland. Now it's known as Eswatini, which is a, right. a country of a million people in Southern Africa. It's a landlocked country, basically enclosed entirely by South Africa and Mozambique. Yeah. It's a kingdom. And the fellowship was for playwriting. I was writing plays back then, like I mentioned before. But while there, I found like a real life story I wanted to write. And it was about a real life serial killer who had been in this kingdom and killed many, many women and children years before I was there. And his trial for these killings was ending while I was there. So I sort of sat in at the end of the trial and then did a story about that. And I didn't finish it until after I left the country. But it was like really like my, my first ever feature. Is that available to read anywhere? Because I would love to read that. Yeah, you, you can find the link on my website, which is just seanrevive.com. Or you can just Google the killers of Swaziland and you'll find the story. It's a very, very long feature, but maybe my best story I've ever written or the ones that I'm most proud of just because it took so long and has so many twists and turns. It's really hard to describe because it goes into a lot of different things, but the short of it is that someone or someone's killed about 40 or 50 women and children in the early 2000s. Oh my God. Around the time that HIV was like really, really like peaking in this country, which had the highest HIV prevalence in the world. And so there was like all these murders happening and all these deaths happening because of HIV as well. And the story just sort of tells like the intertwining stories of all that. And there's a bunch of other like weird factors. And the result is this huge mystery that I may or may not have solved during the reporting, luckily. How did you even find out about this? How did this get on your radar? So I, I used to read the daily newspapers there, which are in English. There was two papers, The Observer and The Times, and I would read them like almost every day or every other day. And this story was just like all over the local papers. Mm. The killer's name was David Similani, and you just see his picture and his name like in the paper all the time. And it was fun reading the local papers, just like seeing what's going on in the country. I was there for you know, almost two years. So I had a lot of time to like, you know, learn about the country and travel around it. It was very small. I could see like every corner of it. And this trial was just like the dominant news story. Is slash was one of these countries where like the bureaucratic language was English and then there were some local languages as well? Yeah, one local language, which is very unusual. Just one small country. Everybody there speaks Siswati, mm -hmm. which is very, very similar to Zulu, which is one of the many languages spoken in South Africa. But it's a click language, which I did not learn the language. It was too hard for me to learn. But, you know, I could do greetings and stuff like that and be polite. But English is sort of language of a lot of business. Mm -hmm like government business, like, you know, certainly like banks and stuff like that. But really, most people just spoke Swati there. And you'd have to sort of just do your best with English. Click languages are 
so interesting and just so foreign to any experience I've ever had speaking anything. Yeah, it's really hard for an American to do it. I had some friends who had clicks in their names. And so I got better at it just from like, you know, working in an office with them, seeing them all the time. But even now, I'm not sure if I was even doing it correctly. Right. <laughs> as often as I practiced it, I think a lot of people were probably just being polite, you know, when I said their name over and over. There's not just one kind of click, right? In Saswati, my understanding is that it's mostly just one. My memory of that could be a little mm-hmm. wrong. In other languages, there'll be a lot of different ones. Saswati is, I think the clicks are a little bit more similar to each other than other languages. I need to confirm if that's correct, but there was not a lot of different kinds. Is it tonal too? No. I lived in Ghana and at least one of the main languages there was tonal, if not all of them. It was really hard to like say words there. I would say Saswati is easier even with the clicks than a tonal language. Tonal language is like, it's just more subtle. That's, I mean, another thing, you know, growing up only speaking English and there are a lot of fucking tonal languages out there. What's the most tones? It's like eight or nine. I think some languages have eight or nine tones, maybe. I don't know. I don't even hear one. It's crazy. What exactly is a tonal language? Like what's an example of one? A Mandarin is a tonal language. Uh, okay. Basically, what happens to the pitch of the individual sounds mm. affects their meaning. So there's a very famous one that everyone uses in Mandarin, which is ma. And I'm going to fuck this up. So, Sean, can you do this better than I can? Because I can't get any of them right. No, I cannot. I will do it worse. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, depending on what you say, so it's like ma, 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 you know, depending on what happens to that pitch... I think this one, it's like mother, horse, totally different words that just depend on the inflection of the pitch. God, that's so cool. Mandarin, I believe, has four tones. There are languages with many more. I think Vietnamese has maybe six. It's a very, very common thing for languages throughout the world to have. Romance languages do not have them. Germanic languages don't have them, but in Asia and Africa, and I think some indigenous languages in the Americas as well. It's just like a thing you just grow up doing. Every language just sounds, you know, fucking crazy if you don't speak it. So people who just grow up with it, it's just a thing, you know, it's no big deal. But for someone who didn't grow up with that sensitivity to it, it's, I think, very, very hard to get right. Yeah. I remember some people trying to like teach me this stuff and I just like, fail miserably, even at the very most basic like yeah. attempt at you know trying some of these words. It just wasn't in my brain. I can't do it. That's right. And especially with a lot of these, you know, with something like Mandarin, couple that with a completely different writing system, right? If you're writing in, you know, kanji, there's a lot for, for example, an English speaker to try to learn if you're trying to communicate in that language. Yeah. Yeah. It's a whole fucking thing. And it's really interesting. Yeah, I just pulled up the Wikipedia page for tone linguistics, and uh, I'm doing a deep dive, baby. What's the most tones? It's not more than 10, I think. I think it's like eight or nine. I don't know, but they have diagrams of like tone contours, which look tight as hell. I'm going to look this up. Hold on. Most tones in a language, that first thing that comes up, and it is 14 tones, it says. What the fuck? In Ivory Coast? It says in Liberia and Ivory Coast. I don't know how to pronounce this. The We or Kru languages spoken by the Kru people in Liberia and the Ivory Coast are famous for having very large tone systems. Now, by the way, this is from Quora, so I don't know how seriously to take it, but, (laughs) you know, my point is that it's a pretty common thing, right, to have tonal languages. Trying to find out how many tones there were in Ghana. How many languages were there in Ghana that people spoke? I want to say dozens, if not hundreds, of languages spoken in the country. 
one of the main languages is called Twi, and I'm not even saying the name right. It's T-W-I, I think it almost sounds more like an R, mm-hmm. and that is a tonal language. I'm trying to see how many tones it has to see what Wikipedia says. At least five, it says. At least five. Wow. I love how at least, like... They don't know. How do you not know? I, that's such an interesting thing. Could be a spectrum, I'm guessing. So what motivated the move from Swaziland to Ghana? I finished in Swaziland in 2011. I got a job in New York, so I moved there. You're married at this point or no? No, I met my future wife, Miranda, in New York. So after Swaziland, I came to New York, and I just had some friends who lived there. I, I lived there before. It was an easy place to move. When you grow up in North Jersey, it's like half the people you know live in fucking New York. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't want to be there. I like I really just sort of wanted my like Swaziland life back because I just loved it there so much. But you know, smaller place. My best friend from there had left and I just felt like, okay, it's time to move on. Maybe it's time for me to leave too. But I didn't really have like a real goal other than, you know, continuing to write, that kind of thing. Yes, I lived in New York two years and during those two years I met Miranda. Basically as soon as we met, I'm like, hey, you wanna move back to Swaziland with me? And we both left New York. We went back to Swaziland so I could finish that story I mentioned, got married somewhere in there. And then went to Ghana and lived in Ghana for a year and a half. And then from there to Atlanta. And here we are. Gotcha. That's my sort of international story, the very short version of it. I love it. And visa stuff was like, I'm always interested in this. It was a non-issue. You could just get that stuff covered. Or was that a problem? Uh, it's something you have to think about. In Swaziland, even though I had this fellowship, you know, which was like done with the approval of the Swaziland government, I still had to leave the country every, I think it was every month. I had to just drive. <laughs> like into South Africa? Yeah. You're not supposed to do this technically, but like everyone does it. Like you uh, <laughs> drive 20, 30 minutes west, cross the border, cross the border back, get your passport stamp, and then come back to town. Yep. <sighs> I traveled a ton, so I like, would go in and out of the country all the time for other reasons. But if I had gone a month without leaving the country, which was unusual, yeah. I would just go do that. And like, you're not really supposed to do that, but a lot of people just do it. And then in Ghana... I had an actual work visa because I had an actual job. I was working for a think tank there. Did you get to travel around Africa a lot? I traveled a lot in the area of Swaziland when I was there. I went to South Africa all the time and did a bunch of like hiking there. And uh, I went to Mozambique a lot, which yeah, is close to the east. And Mozambique is amazing. Like one of the most amazing countries you could ever possibly visit. Just like hundreds of miles of beautiful beaches that are not very well populated. So you can just have like your own beach. Um, and you can stay places very, very cheap and have great food and super cool people, like cheap beer, just like an awesome, awesome place. And they speak Portuguese. So the language is really beautiful there. Right. The non-local language is Portuguese. It's just gorgeous, everything. I went to Malawi, but that was for a story. That was like later on after I moved to Atlanta. Yeah. Spent six weeks there for a story. Wow. And I went to Sao Tome. Actually, my shirt says Sao Tome on it. Oh, really? <laughs> Fascinated by teeny countries. It's a really, really small country. It's just two big islands. Kind of look like what I imagine Hawaii looks like. Yep. Just like gorgeous, like waterfalls everywhere. Yep. And very, very few tourists because it's hard to get to. Really expensive to get there, but not from Ghana. I've never been to sub-Saharan Africa, but I've always been fascinated by the Lake Victoria kind of area. It just seems incredible uh, in terms of nature. Yeah, there's just so much. I've traveled a good deal in West Africa and Southern Africa, but I've seen like... <laughs> One third of 1% of the continent. Oh, it's unimaginably large. So huge, yeah. And with so many different cultures and traditions and languages and everything, like it's unthinkably big. Yeah, it's amazing. What was like your favorite local food? I feel like I always ask this for people who have lived other places. Oh, yeah. Well, that's always the most important question. It's what I want to know. Yeah. <laughs> so in Swaziland, the food's just pretty like plain Jane. So 
I wouldn't recommend anything there, but they have amazing fruit. Swaziland's got great clean water, which is awesome and unusual for a pretty poor country. So you can just like buy anything from the street. You're not going to get sick. And street food is always the best food, no matter where you go. And back then I ate meat and I would do tons of street chicken mm-hmm. and tons of pop, which is just like a cornmeal mash. But the avocados there were amazing. But then in Ghana, Ghana's got like its own food. There's like amazing foods that like you just don't really find in a lot of places. Some of it overlaps, I'm sure, with other like Western African countries. But there's something called Red Red, which is spicy uh, bean dish with a lot of palm oil. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. And you get fried plantains with it and dip those in. Uh. And the food's really spicy there. Uh, which I took a while to get used to, but now I am anku, which is like a, it's a mash also. I think it's made of not potatoes, but that other thing that's like a potato it starts the P. I forgot what it is. It's like sort of like a potato mash, but it's extremely sour and yeasty flavored. Mm-hmm. It's unlike anything I've ever eaten before. And, it's, and you eat it with your hands, so your hands just like end up covered in what looks like mashed potatoes, but it's really hard to get off. Uh-huh. Um, and it's just like super delicious. It's called bankua. I'm sure you can make it, but it'd probably be really hard. Maybe you can buy it somewhere. I think you have a Ghanaian restaurant near you. B-A-N-K-U, I'm pretty sure. It's awesome. Is there a Ghanaian community in Atlanta? Yeah, there's Ghanaian communities everywhere. There's just tons of Ghanaians. Um, yeah, there's a restaurant like 20 minutes from our house, and I'm sure there's others. Basically, you go in there, and it's like you're in Accra. It, like, it looks exactly like Accra. The menu is the same. The music is the same. It was amazing. Even the furniture was the same there. That's so great. Yeah, I've met a few Ghanaians here. But yeah, there's like thousands of them just in Atlanta alone. I wouldn't be surprised. Cool. But no Swazi. You don't need to meet Swazis anywhere. Yeah, it's so small. Is the population of that country, is it more than 100,000? It's like a million. It's like a million. Okay, got it. That's still tiny. It's tiny, yeah. All right, let's move on to our first segment, which is our pop culture recommendation segment. It's called What's Poppin'? The theme song goes right here, which we add in post so you won't hear it. (laughs) What's poppin'? What's poppin'? Yeah, Layton, what's poppin'? What's poppin' for me is a book called The Simpsons, An Uncensored, Unauthorized History mm-hmm. by John Ortfit. Probably saying that wrong, but very, very interesting oral history of like the development and production of The Simpsons. Hmm. It's 90% like firsthand, everybody talking about it. Like fascinating the level of drama at the inception. And then, you know, once things take off, everyone fighting over money and rights and all that, like how big of fuckers Sam Simon and James L. Brooks and to an extent Matt Greening were like, really? Like I had no idea about any of this stuff yet. I'm probably gonna get this wrong, but James L. Brooks's assistant was like a real attack dog who was very, very, very overly loyal. And Smithers is like directly based on him. Oh, really? Wow. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. This book, it was difficult for the guy to get anybody to talk to him, like, on the record. Like, apparently, the show was not happy about it, which is how you know it's good. Right. And then there are tons of, like, writer's room stories, which were all delightful. Like, lots of stuff with Conan and John Swartzwelder and, like, great stuff. The only thing is that the author, when he starts cutting in with his own take, it's like, I am begging you to shut up. Stop trying to be clever. (laughs) You know, when you put together an oral history, there's like an inherent editorializing in how you choose to construct the information. I don't need you to butt in and be like, eh, the later seasons suck. Like, yeah, duh. And this was written in 2009. So even then they were like, this has been going on forever. Nobody needs this. So little grim. But yeah, just really, really great time. It really makes you appreciate like 
what an achievement it is. And like I picked that up because I've been just throw on in the background golden era rewatch. Uh, it's just great. Yeah. I love it. Do you have a favorite line in the history of The Simpsons? <sighs> this is a good question. Lately, the thing that's been rattling in my head is the Planet of the Apes, the musical. Oh. Like that whole. Yes, a very good one. <laughs> Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Or I hate every ape I see from, from chimpanzee A to chimpanzee. That's so good. What about you? I'm always quoting this line. I don't even know the meaning behind it exactly anymore, but there's one where um, the Arnold Schwarzenegger type character, the actor. Rainier Wolfcastle, right? Yeah. Yeah, that sounds right, yeah. He's doing like a stunt. He's like being like engulfed in like water or slime that's like radioactive. And he says, the goggles do My nothing. My eyes, the goggles do nothing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I just think about that all the time. I love that one. For some reason, like the delivery, the situation, that's probably like the first three seasons or something like that. I still remember that line to this day. The one I always, always think about, and this is also an earlier, this is probably season three or four. I may have even talked about this on the show before, is they're on a movie set, and it might be that movie set with the, the Rainier <laughs> Wolf Castle one, is there's a guy painting a horse black and white to look like a cow. And somebody, I can't remember if it's Bart or Lisa, someone says, well, why are you painting that horse? And <laughs> the prop guy goes, uh, cows don't look like cows on film. <laughs> And then I don't remember that. And then they say, well, what happens if you need a horse? And the guy goes, we just tape a bunch of cats together. (laughs) There's one, I can't remember what it is, but it's like Homer's having a a fantasy of like something happening in the backyard. And it's like Millhouse is crawling through a bunch of mattresses. Uh And he goes, it smells in here. And Homer goes, no, it doesn't. (laughs) Like even in Homer's fantasy, Millhouse is complaining. We could do an entire episode just of Simpsons lines. I've been hanging out with more people in person lately. And I feel like every time, like 15 minutes in, I'll be like, I'm sorry, I've made three Simpsons references so far. My brain is mush. It's just so good. It's just how it is. When it's good, in those like seasons three through seven or whatever, it's it's the greatest thing ever. Sean, what's the problem with you? I wanted to pick something that probably most people hadn't heard of. So I wanted to recommend some books sci-fi books. Great. I did an interview with an author named Robert Reed. His most popular book is called Marrow, which says, I don't think very popular at all. Mm. I found it like on a backpacking trip 15 years ago and read it or something like that. I did an interview with him, but I never got to publish it. So I thought it'd be a cool place to just like promote his work. He's written a lot of stuff. He's written like dozens of books and hundreds of short stories that have all been like Asimov's and all these other sci-fi magazines. But he's most well known for this series called The Great Ship Series. And it's just a bunch of really, really interesting ideas, you know, stories that take place in this universe where um, there's an abandoned giant alien ship Mm -hmm. floating through the universe. And it's immense in scale. It's so big that they find hidden planets on the ship and it's huge. And now it's being colonized by like humans and all these other alien species around the universe. And as it passes through their own galaxies and solar systems, and it's just one of the coolest ideas I've ever read in science fiction or, or any sort of fiction. And he's just a really wonderful like author of ideas. And I would recommend starting with the book called Marrow, M-A-R-R-O-W. Hmm. It's just really, really amazing ideas, like unlike anything else I've ever seen out there. That's it. Cool. Awesome. Great. I love it. Brian, what's popping? I also have a kind of speculative fiction book to recommend this week. Do you guys know China Mieville? 
he writes a lot in a bunch of different genres and he has stuff that's kind of straight sci-fi he has stuff that's a little steampunky and i haven't read too much by him but one of my closest friends who hates everything was like he likes stanislaw lem and china mievel and he's like very very discriminating when it comes to this stuff he's like this is the dude to read so I read this book by Mievo called The City and the City, and it is kind of a police procedural that takes place in a city or cities where the conceit is that these cities essentially occupy the same physical space. So they're literally right on top of each other, but they are different countries and residents of one city learn psychologically to not see the people in the other city or the buildings in the other city. So even though someone in the cities have their own cultures and traditions and ways of moving and fashions and, you know, basically it's kind of an allegory for, you know, how, what we choose to ignore, blah, 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 blah. But it's really fun. It's very well written. It's basically a crime occurs where it seems like maybe someone has crossed illegally from one city into the other, which literally sometimes involves taking a couple steps in one direction or whatever. And it's just really fun. It's pretty short. It's like 300 pages, very well written. And I really enjoyed it. How do you spell the name of the author? China, like the country. And then his last name is Mievel, which is M-I-E with an accent, V-I-L-L-E. I have heard of this book. I think I read a review of it or like a preview of it or something like that. It sounded really cool and still does. It's a cool idea. One of the countries is kind of, they're both very like Eastern European and one is like an ex-socialist country that's now exploding, you know, with getting a lot of Western investment and stuff. And the other country with where the book starts. So the names of the countries are Beige and Okoma. And Beige is like not doing great. And Okoma is on the upswing. And they're just like totally different places where people learn to live in one or not the other. And if you're going to, you know, do work there, you have to go through like all this psychological conditioning. So they teach you to not see people from the other city and blah, 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 that sort of stuff. It's a cool idea. The author just looks like a badass, like incredible author photos. Yes. And he's a hardcore leftist, like essentially an out-and-out Marxist, and he's British, and I didn't verify this, but my friend who recommended this said his goal is to like literally just write in as many genres as he can. Like This is his procedural. The other one I read semi-recently was Perdido Street Station, which is very steampunky, but it's like technology and magic and that kind of stuff. That book was fun too, but much, much longer. And he just bounces around between genres. I think he might have started out as an economist and then, you know, just kind of kept writing and now as a full-time writer. That's awesome. Yeah. All right. That's what's popping. Right. Now it's time for our last segment, which is called Peaches and Lemons, which is three parts gratitude exercise and one part petty grousing. And that theme song goes right here. Peaches and Lemons. Great. That was the theme song. Stunning. So we're each going to start with a lemon, which is a thing that is a mild bummer or annoyance. Cool. Yeah, I can go first easily. (laughs) I have to go to a hospital or whatever, some kind of doctor's office and sleep there tonight for a sleep study. 
And Whoa. yeah, like I have some form of sleep apnea. I don't know what it is exactly. It's probably not that serious, but they want to watch me sleep for a while. And look, I've watched enough people sleep that it's only fair that someone turned the tables on me and they are watching me sleep overnight. So I got to go sleep in this fucking thing with a bunch of sensors on me to determine if I need to wear a, like a CPAP or something like that, which is probably likely Wow, if I had to guess at this point. So it's not like a pressing medical issue, but it is like, God damn it, I have to go sleep in this thing and I'm probably not going to like the <laughs> result that comes out of it. So, Man. yeah. That's a bummer. Yeah. That sounds like a good start for a um, speculative fiction novel, however. Yeah, like a sleep study and you're kind of phasing in and out during the study and it's like the sleep apnea is just breathing into a different dimension or something. I don't know. <laughs> That's fun. What are they really studying? I have lemon... I went to Knott's Scary Farm you last did. night. Oh, wow. I did. Did you see the sliders? Yes. Hold on. We're going to get to it with the peaches because this is fucking great. But I realized as we were standing in line for rides, I haven't been to a theme park in forever. And there's something about the subsection of humanity that you see in line for a theme park ride that just makes me hate people on a level that is oh, so yeah. visceral that I cannot stand it. Because it's just like, do you want all the most annoying people in the world to be packed like sardines like right here? Uh-huh. People lighten up cigarettes. Like, I'm copacetic with cigarette smoke, okay? But if you light up in the middle of the line, I want to kill you. Yeah. There was a moment where I looked around and I was like, Aaron, there are four couples making out right now. <laughs> and like, <laughs> just fucking four. They're always like super handsy. There are two teenagers who are doing the like, eh, like, like you could see tongues tongue. fully out. Yes. Oh, God. Just like poking each other's tongues. People like, when they jump up onto the rails and sit, like, I don't want to put my hand on the rail and feel the heat of Ugh, someone's yeah. lingering ass. No, thank you. No. <laughs> anyway, that's my lemon. It makes me feel like an old man for being so mad about it because it makes me feel like, oh, I just want everyone to stand silently and with their arms by their sides eating crackers and quiet. I don't want to watch anybody make out literally ever, least of all teenagers. Nope. <sighs> Not teenagers, many of them at once. Oh, it's just like, don't, no. don't oh, yeah. come on. What about this is erotic? What demographic would be most excited to see make out? Oh, <laughs> I think 90 plus. And then it's Fair just enough. like, good on you. Go for it. Yeah. If you're over the age of 60, you earned it and it's okay. Especially if you're in line for a huge roller coaster. Like, yeah, I get it. That 100%. <laughs> could not agree more. Yes. Sean, do you have a lemon? I don't have a good anecdote. And I don't even have any good specifics. So there's something in my greater family happening next week that's really sad. And it'd be nice to just have everyone be grateful for things that aren't happening that are sad in their family. I don't really want to talk about exactly what it is. Yeah, that's fine. Of course. It's the lemon in my life, and there's no other lemon right now. I'm sorry. Yeah. That's all right. Well, in terms of being grateful, now it's time for peaches. Yeah. Where we each get to share three good, cool, exciting, nice things. They can be big or small or whatever that we're grateful for and happy about. So... Whoever would like to go, go for it. Well, I'm happy to go first again. Number one, these are good peaches. I just got back from a week in Toronto where I recorded my smooth jazz album with Commander Meowch from Twerp. And I am very, very excited about it. I love the studio we were in. I love the sounds we got. They're not even like rough mixes, but the rough bounces we have from the week are fantastic. So You better send me this shit. And I want the full 
full synth lowdown on this situation. That was the real joy of this place. Not only was it just a great place, they had a really nice selection of synthesizers. So I played on an M1, on a DX7, on a Juno, on a, not synthesizers, but I played on a Hammond organ. I played on a Whirly. I played on a Rhodes. I played the vibraphone. And of course, saxophone, which was the main featured instrument on the album. But it was great. We got a few people in from Twerp to play some parts. And it was just an awesome time. I hadn't seen those guys in in like a year. And it was just lovely to see some good friends again. And musically, I'm thrilled with what we did. That's awesome. Is it a straight album or is it a comedy album? It's like 10, 20% a comedy album, but mostly a straight album. It's the kind of thing where I want people to be confused by it. And we're treating it seriously, like we're recording it well. I wrote the songs to be good songs, but they are smooth jazz songs mostly, which means that they are well-made with questionable taste. So <laughs> that's the sweet spot. Fabulous. The goal is to get like actual smooth jazz airplay with a few of these, which is probably not unthinkable. I bet you could do it. Do you have a vision for the album art for this? Since we've spent so much time talking about the Rippington's cat. Oh, oh, I have a few ideas. The problem is that everything that occurs to me is like borderline parody, which I don't really want to get into. So this character, the sax player, Trey Magnifique, wears a white suit with no shirt and has a soprano sax <laughs> and sunglasses. And the first thing that occurs to me is like the cover of Thriller when Michael Jackson is like laying down on his side. A... That would probably be questionable from a variety of standpoints, so I don't want to do that. But something with that sort of airbrushed 80s aesthetic is what I want. You should do the um, ponytail and then you're the guy from Lost Boys. Oh, yeah. Yes. Greased up. Yes, greased up. Yeah, a lot of grease. You get a free packet of grease with any order of your CD. (laughs) I haven't thought more about that, although I will need to do a Photoshop pretty soon. I think there's going to be a lot of like leather-bound plush armchairs and snifters of brown alcohols. So that's probably the vibe. Also, there was an idea to do some of the marketing around like 80s action movies such as recreate the ending scene from RoboCop. Nice plan, son. What's your name? Magnifique. You know, that sort of stuff. Oh, my God. Lethal Weapon. A lot of sacks in that movie. Lots of sacks in that movie. The poster from Cobra, which was Stallone, the famous crime is the disease. He's the cure poster. So there's some version of that maybe, which is like, you know, non-smooth jazz is the disease. He's the cure sort of stuff. (laughs) I don't know if we're actually going to do it, but... These are some ideas that are being tossed around. Anyway, I'm very happy about it. I love it. Peach number two, it was fucking Halloween yesterday. And last year, Halloween obviously wasn't really a thing. The year before that, I was on the road. We were touring in Europe. And so I missed a five-year-old Halloween, basically a six-year-old Halloween, talking about the age of my daughter. And we had a seven-year-old out on the streets last night, trick-or-treating, and it was fucking awesome. And people were just outside their houses with buckets handing out candy on the street, and it was fantastic. So it felt very safe, and she had a great time. She was a pirate. Rachel was Captain Hook, and I was the Kraken. The pictures you sent me were the cutest thing in the world. It was very, very cute. And Audrey was just in heaven. Had a great time. Big candy hall? Big candy hall. And also, you know, houses in L.A., like, they go pretty hard with the decorating because sometimes it's like fucking set decorators and stuff. 
So there was a bunch of people in like crazy surgeon clown costumes doing slow motion fake surgeries on a lawn and turning around to look at the kids and like holding up gore and stuff. It was awesome. Adore it. Amazing. <laughs> there was a kid was a kid in like a boxy robot costume, like a classic robot costume with like LED lights draped around it. But the kid couldn't walk in the costume because it was too <laughs> ill-fitting. So the dad had to carry this costume under an arm. And every time they got in front of a house, the kid would stop. The dad would put the robot on and this tiny robot, the kid was probably five or something, would waddle up to the door, trick or treat, waddle out, costume off, back under the arm, next house. It was awesome to behold. And anytime you get little kids in Halloween costumes, it's just the best. I love that. Yeah. And speaking of theme parks, Final Peaches, we're going to Disney on Wednesday. We're pulling Audrey out of school and we're just going to Disney. I looked for low attendance days and this week was one of them. So we're going to Disney. That's awesome. That's going to be awesome. Haven't told her yet. Oh, you haven't told her yet? No. With kids that age, like the more you tell them in advance about that stuff, the worse it is. So, like, we'll tell her that morning. Yeah. What's she going to do? Clear her fucking calendar? Yeah, and then, like, <laughs> be stock still all night, like, awake. My parents would always be like, oh, we're going to the broccoli farm. Are you going to a nice little asparagus farm? <laughs> My uncle played it on the other side of the spectrum where he would do these major reveals to his kids, and they would get so excited they started barfing. <laughs> And then the trip had to be postponed. <laughs> yeah. My cousins would regularly like have to change their plans when they were little, you know, like they were heading out the door and then they would lose their minds and the youngest one would start throwing up. <laughs> and then, they, then they missed their flights. It was great. Is excitement barfing like a common phenomenon? I've never heard of that. It happens sometimes, I think, or like, you know, nervous barfing. I've had like positive emotion yartzing, like for sure. Wow. I've never heard of that. Yeah. Well, those are some good peaches. Yeah. Sean. Went trick-or-treating last night with uh, Miranda and my almost three-year-old boy. Oh my gosh. And it was so much fun. It was like the best Halloween I can remember. Like since I like trick-or-treated and enjoyed it yeah. myself, this was like the most fun. He doesn't even really know what candy is. He doesn't even know what he was getting. Yep. But- he just like sprinted to every house with his friends. We had a bunch of people walking around. It's so great. And Atlanta's kind of like little Hollywood now. And so there is a lot of good like, you know, decorations also. Our neighborhood, I guess, is sort of like an LA neighborhood. It's just houses, you know, yeah. but it's in the city. And he loved it so much, just like sprinting and saying trick or treat. And just hearing him say trick or treat every time was just like, it's so cute. It was a joy. What was his uh, costume? He was a Ghostbuster because we had that costume from last year. So it was a little small on him. It was just like tight. But like he uh, <laughs> loved telling everybody he was Egon, but he doesn't really even know who Egon is. <laughs> We're a Ghostbusters family. Ghostbusters 1 is Miranda's favorite movie. We have, we have a poster of it. It's a hand-painted poster from Ghana. Ghana has a tradition of like hand-painted movie posters. That's awesome. Whoa. And that's one of them. And I wrote a story about Ghostbusters 2, which is my most popular story ever. So we have like a Ghostbusters family. And yeah, he did that. And then he just got so much candy, which I'm going to eat. And so it was just an awesome day. I don't know if I've read your Ghostbusters 2 story. And I really want to because I'm a huge Ghostbusters fan. Yeah, it's a pretty good story. It's one of the first ones I ever wrote. It was probably like just before the Ninja Sex Party story. And it just was massively popular by like long form journalism standards. Because it was like a really cool combination of a crazy, crazy subject 
plus pop culture. It was about an actor who was in Ghostbusters 2 who played the bad guy. Yeah. It's a great story. Highly recommend my own story <laughs> for you to read it. About the guy who played Vigo. Yeah, it's literally about Vigo. Incredible title for this, by the way. Which is what? <laughs> the hateful life and spiteful death of the man who, who was Vigo the Carvavian. <sighs> cool. Yeah, it's the best title I've ever had, but I did not come up with it. It was my editor, which is basically the best title maybe for any story ever. <laughs> um, it's it's pretty incredible. And and the, and the story is exactly about that title. It just like, fit perfectly. Great. So yeah, that's my one peach was Chris reading last night. Two is I'm doing really well in my tennis league, and that makes me really happy. Congratulations. I play in like an amateur tennis league here in Atlanta, and I'm doing pretty well. So that's number two. Oh, and finishing the podcast. I'm just very happy to have finished my first podcast and don't have another project at the moment. So I'm just in between and thinking about what's next and just really enjoying this post-podcast rest period. Yeah, Those are my peaches. Cool. I love it. That's great. All right. I got peaches. My first peach is that our Witching Hour show is on Wednesday. And, you know, there's a really big buildup. A lot of work went into that. A whole month of me just stressing myself to death. Like, I cannot stress enough how good everybody was. And uh, on the day, I had terrible tech problems. We thought we fixed them, but I spent the whole afternoon freaking out. I get up there to do my thing. I end up VJing to my desktop, unknowing that my output was not up there for the audience for about a full minute. And then we get it in and everything's fucking up. Like basically, I was so nervous about this that I had made a list of like, okay, I'm going to write down every single thing that I'm worried about. And I did. And then the next page in my journal, I wrote like, okay, here's all the good things that are probably going to happen. I'm so fucking grateful that it went as badly, quote unquote, badly. Everybody loved it and it was great. I'm so glad that it went as badly as it did because it was like a huge anxiety lesson for me of like, yeah, everything can fuck up and it's fine and it doesn't matter because I just did not care. I was super physically nervous and then afterwards everyone was like, hey, don't beat yourself up. And I was like, I don't actually care, (laughs) which I feel like I've been circling around like a therapy breakthrough for a while and I feel like that did it. Oh, that's so great. So I've been in a really good mood since that happened. Like it was just a relief as like a workaholic perfectionism person who's really hard on herself. Like it was very helpful to me. There is something so freeing about having a show go totally off the rails in a way that you really can't control that I honestly think it is kind of the best experience you can have next to everything going perfectly. Just below that is everything completely fucking up and having to deal with it. Yeah, I was told this to Brent and he was mentioning that like Dave Chappelle went out for a show or something and then bombed as hard as you could possibly bomb and was like, oh, that's the worst case scenario. That's not that bad. Yeah. So yeah, I'm very grateful for that. My second peach related is uh, it was at the show and a very lovely person from our Discord came up to me wearing a late night shirt and he was like, oh, you should meet this person. And uh, it was Jarek, our producer. Hell yeah. We met in person for the first time. For the first time ever. Yeah, that was surreal. I did not know that he was going to come. Jarek, you were wonderful. A bunch of my friends got to meet for the first time, and I just felt like very supported and loved at that show and made a bunch of new friends, and it was just great. I haven't hung out in a room full of women for a while, mm-hmm. especially like a bunch of very cool, talented women, and we were all you know, nervous, and then everybody went up there and killed it. It was just like really, really good vibes. That's great. And then my third peach is that I wasn't going to do anything on Halloween. And I was just hanging out with Aaron and Susie on Saturday. And they were like, 
okay, you're coming with us to Knott's Scary Farm. Mm -hmm. So it was me and Vernon and Aaron and Susie. And I have never been to like a theme park Halloween thing. And I haven't done a haunted house since I was like a scaredy cat teenager. Yeah. So what a fucking treat. I had a amazing time. I did not get home until 2 (laughs) a.m. So I'm exhausted. And after this ends, I'm going right back to sleep. This was last night you went. Yeah, yeah. So Halloween night, my God. (laughs) coolest, coolest, coolest. I'm so jealous of every single one of the scarers. Like I was just looking at them scaring people being like, I want your job so bad. It must be so much fun. So it's interesting you mentioned this because another favorite podcast of mine, Double Threat, recently did a whole episode devoted to the sliders of Not Scary Farm. Really? Did you know there's a documentary called Sliders of Ghost Town? And there's a whole culture about these people. Basically, they kind of skid on their knees and they wear these metallic shoes that scrape and kick up sparks. And they all have characters and they're confined to specific areas of the park. It's a whole fucking thing. I am so stoked to learn this exists. Yeah, listen to the episode of Double Threat, which was last week. And I've not yet watched the Sliders of Ghost Town documentary, but it is a wild subculture that apparently exists and is centered around not scary farm. They're so cool. I got one of them who like came right in front of me and did the sparky thing. And it was great because there was this one (laughs) poor girl. Like, you know that when they are visibly scared, it's like blood in the water. And this poor like tiny girl running around screaming. And she had like three of the sliders (laughs) completely converge on her. It was the best. That rules. They had like one of the haunted mazes or haunts or whatever was like a wax work. So it was like a wax model factory kind of deal. Yeah. Oh, Susie was filming a lot of it. And there was apparently one scarer who like followed me for a really solid period of time. And I did not even notice him. Yeah. (laughs) Like at no point did I notice him. There was also this thing where, you know, you can do this thing where they're only allowed to be in certain areas. So if they start chasing you and you, cross the border. They just have to stand at the edge going like, ah, you know, like growling yeah. at you. I'm so curious what the training, because all of them have their little props and they all want to like put it right in oh. front of your face. And I'm so curious what the like throw a thing in your face training is. Listen to this double threat episode. You will not be disappointed. They talk to death, by which I mean the guy whose character is death. It's the kind of thing where they casually mention, they're like, you know, oh, uh, well, of course, blah, 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 Keith, and by which I mean Keith Turnbull, the you know famous slider from blah, blah, blah. And it's like this whole subculture thing, which is so localized. Oh, my God. This is exactly what I wanted. Yeah. I've never heard of any of this before. I hadn't either. I only heard about it because they discussed it on this podcast. And I was like, what the fuck is this? They discussed it like a year ago. And then this year, their Halloween episode was talking to these guys. Sean, I know you got to go, but I just wanted to say this was awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. And it's just great to see you again. It's been several years now, and it's fun to talk and catch up. Yeah, this has been wonderful. Thanks so much. I've never done an interview this long, not even close. So it was really new format for me, too. It's really great to catch up after all this time. I had such a really awesome experience doing that story and meeting you for the first time. And now to see you four years later-ish and to meet you late, (laughs) really, really cool. Yeah, this has been wonderful. Where can people find you online aside from all the other articles that we talked about? So I have a website where you can read all my articles or find links to all of them rather. And also has links to my podcast, which is called Longshot. My website is just my name, S-H-A-U-N-R-A-V-I-V. 
Facebook.com, SeanRabib.com. But I'm also on Twitter, and that is all. <laughs> Twitter and my website, or just Google me, um, and you can find all my stories. Yeah, thanks for the plug. For sure. Our audience will really like Longshot. I mean, a lot of the other articles too. Certainly, you know, there's a lot of NSP fans listening to this, but we do talk to a bunch of science type people on here as well. And I think Longshot is that perfect, like accessible kind of thing for people who want to know more, but don't really have the more expertise in the thing. I mean, I don't know shit about this stuff and I was following it, you know, from the get-go. So I thought you nailed it in such a way that would also be great for our listeners. Thanks so much. Yeah. And if anyone has any questions, including you guys about any of my stories or the podcast, my email address is out there. So anyone can always email me or tweet at me. Great. Always available. Amazing. Well, thank you both. Everyone at home listening, I hope you're well. hope you had a very fun and sexy Halloween. And as usual, I don't know, hope you're flirty and thriving and coming and uh, let's end the podcast. We're working on how to end the show, Sean. It's a work in progress. Yeah. I think it's perfect. Thank you. (laughs) All right, everybody. That's the end of the episode. (laughs) Bye. Bye. All right. Thanks a lot, guys. Leighton Night is produced by Brian Wecht, Leighton Gray, and Jarek Centeno. Follow us on Twitter at Leighton Night, on Instagram at Leighton underscore Night, or email us at LeightonKnight at gmail.com. <laughs>